Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Humans are omnivores. It's one of our animals' superpowers. There are a lot of things that animals of a particular kind are good at. Birds of prey can see movement from a far way away. Bats have echolocation. Cats are always in the most inconvenient place possible. And humans can eat almost anything. Think about it. Think about how rarefied and specific other animals' diets are, like pandas or koalas or that kind of thing, but not us. We can eat all kinds of fruits and vegetables like eggplants or carrots or jackfruit or durian or tomatoes. We can eat milk from other animals, and we can make cheese out of it, which is great. We can eat all kinds of other animals, be they fish, fowl, or our fellow mammals. We are basically garbage disposals. And if your measurement of success is the survivability of humans, the spread of humans, and humans taking over the globe, well, our status as walking garbage disposals has been great for that. It's helped us, you know, take over the planet, which maybe has some downsides. But those super powerful, omnivorous GI tracts and those teeth in our mouth that can eat fruit, nuts, and fellow animals also mean that we can eat each other. Cannibalism has been with humans since before there were humans. We have bones from both early humans and proto-humans that bear knife and teeth marks, making it clear that the meat on those bones was scraped or bitten off by tool-using, bone-gnawing other humans or proto-humans. Now, I want to make something clear. We don't know the context for that. We don't know whether this was ceremonial. We don't know whether it was because of predation, like other humans and proto-humans were hunting each other or that kind of thing. We don't know any of that. We just know that as long as people have been around, eating people has also been around. Now, I want to make something clear before I move forward. Whenever anyone makes broad, sweeping generalizations about the nature of humans, or about the nature of culture and civilization, or about human nature or something like that, be skeptical. I'm of the opinion that there are very few broad, sweeping generalizations that you can say about all human societies, cultures, human individuals, what have you. That being said, one of the most common taboos that we have across cultures and across time is the taboo against eating people. In most of the instances where humans get together and decide to live, work, and enjoy each other's company... Not eating humans is usually the order of the day. Now, it does happen. And again, I feel uncomfortable making generalizations, but in the vast majority of instances that we know of where human beings eat other people, it's usually very ritualized. It's usually like the dead person's family consuming them as a way to honor their memory, or people ritualistically eating their slain opponents for a variety of reasons. It's not something that just happens every day. It's not like human societies say, hey, what do you want to do for dinner tonight? And somebody else says, let's eat Bob. And then they eat Bob. 
that doesn't really happen. Cannibalism is taboo. It occasionally happens, and it tends to be highly ritualized. Or it tends to happen in environments of severe desperation and deprivation. And we'll get there in just a moment. But generally, when people have talked about cannibals, they talked about people over there, people in distant lands, people who have strange, mysterious, and threatening customs. And historically, talking about the other as a cannibal is a way to, well, demonize the other. This goes all the way back to Herodotus. You know him. He's held up as a father of Western history. His writing is also about as accurate as a drunk person with a blindfold playing darts in the back of a moving vehicle. So don't take him too seriously. But in volume one of his histories, he says, quote, The anthropophagi have the most savage manners of all human beings, and they neither acknowledge any rule of right nor observe any customary law. They are nomads and wear clothing like that of the Scythians, but have a language of their own, and alone of all these nations, they are man-eaters. Unquote. And that's only the most famous instance of a writer saying that people just beyond the horizon are mysterious and scary because they eat human beings. Another famous instance of this, for a long time I've wanted to do an episode on Ibn Battuta, he was a Muslim traveler who's kind of like the Middle Eastern Marco Polo, and in a lot of his writings he talked about how people just beyond the horizon, the ones that he didn't quite get to meet but heard about, also ate human flesh. So this scary, out-there, flesh-eating other is pretty common. But that's not what I want to talk about today. Today I want to talk about not the people over the horizon who might turn into flesh-eating monsters, but the people you know, or maybe even the person you are, becoming a flesh-eating monster. I want to talk about a figure, a monster, that demonizes not necessarily cannibals as a people, but cannibalism as an activity and as a transgression. I want to talk about the Wendigo. And you might have heard of it. It's a figure initially from Algonquin mythology. And when you think about the Algonquin, think very broadly, Eastern Canada. Now, the Wendigo, for a lot of people, is something that's going to be familiar through popular culture. Uh, in 1910, a writer called Algernon Blackwood wrote a story set in Canada about Wendigos called The Wendigo, and that made it a horror staple. It later popped up in Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. If you've watched Hannibal, which I haven't seen but I hear is pretty good, the Wendigo figures pretty prominently, what with Hannibal Lecter being a fairly famous fictional people-eater. Margaret Atwood, the Canadian science fiction writer who doesn't like to be called a science fiction writer, has often talked about the Wendigo, and it's through her writing that I first got acquainted with this particular thing of mythology. And I just want to say up front that I am not going to do a deep dive into those pop culture descriptions in this episode. So I am very sorry to Algernon Blackwood, Stephen King, and Margaret Atwood fans. We're not going to go there. Instead, I want to talk about the Wendigo as it exists in actual Algonquin folklore. I also want to acknowledge that I feel a little weird about this, being a non-native guy talking about native mythology. So I am going to let a native scholar do the describing. 
This is from Basil Johnson, a Canadian Ojibwe writer, and he describes De Wendigo this way. Quote, De Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion, the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from superations of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Unquote. And what is frightening about the Wendigo is that you can become one. The Wendigo, in various different tellings, is either what happens to a person after they eat human flesh, and that transgression does something bad to them both spiritually and physically, transforming them into a literal and metaphorical monster, or there are also instances of the Wendigo being a spirit that possesses you, takes a hold of you, and in its grasp, that person commits horrible acts against their fellow human beings, killing and eating them. And, even worse, it's never enough. The emaciated Wendigo, with the skin pulled tight over its bones, is never satisfied. No matter how much it consumes, it will still have that gaunt, terrible, ashen look to it. Because the Wendigo is a spirit of starvation. And even after feeding, it grows in accordance with how much it's fed. Instead of being satiated, it just becomes larger, and its hunger becomes larger. The Wendigo keeps killing and consuming. Unlike other predators that lie down and rest after a kill and after a meal, the Wendigo perpetually wants more. Now, I feel weird about this next part because things might get kind of racisty. But one of the more uncomfortable aspects about the Wendigo legend is the idea that it's a real psychosis, a real thing that happens to real people, as in human beings in real life believing that they either have become a Wendigo or are possessed by one. If you look into Wendigo stuff, as I've been doing, this idea of the Wendigo as a culturally specific psychosis among the Algonquin in general and the Ojibwe in particular pops up again and again. And whenever that pops up, people cite this particular letter from a French Jesuit who was traveling in what is today Canada back in 1661. And this French Jesuit said, quote, what caused us greater concern was the intelligence that met us upon entering the lake, namely that the men deputed by our conductor for the purposes of summoning the nations of the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to the report given us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all these species of disease, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men, like veritable werewolves, and devour them voraciously, without being able to appease or glut their appetite. 
ever seeking fresh prey, and the more greedily, the more they eat. The ailment attacked our deputies, and as death is the sole remedy among these simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. This news might well have arrested our journey if our belief in it had been as strong as the assurance we received of its truth. Unquote. Now, that's horrifying, but a few things. You might have noticed that at no point did the writer of that letter in 1661 actually say Wendigo. Also, when I read something like that, I think of how secondhand knowledge it seems. This is not somebody saying that they witnessed the consumption of human flesh. Rather, they have had reports of it. They have had reports of mysterious new people eating other people. Did they see this? No. Did they have direct physical evidence? No. But trust me, guys, it totally happened, and it was totally horrifying. It seems to have the same kind of thing about it as when Herodotus and Ibn Battuta also, quote-unquote, reported on cannibalism. So I'm a little skeptical. Also, in the very next paragraph, that French Jesuit talks about all the baptism that they're doing in what is now Canada, and what a great job they're doing. So that is basically the setup for a bunch of missionary work, and after that, you get the payoff. They're saving souls. They are uncannibalizing people. So keep that in mind. There are also two cases that always come up when people talk about this, one from 1878 and another from 1910. Those are both instances where you had Algonquin men uh, basically murder a bunch of people and possibly eat them. And that's oftentimes floated as instances of Wendigo-ness being a real culturally specific psychosis. But those are just two examples. I remain unconvinced that they prove that Wendigo psychosis is a real thing. People flip out and kill people all the time. And you don't need a culturally specific psychosis to necessarily do that. But... As I was reading up for this episode, one of the most interesting ideas that I came upon while reading about all things Wendigo was the idea that the story and the figure of the Wendigo, as we know it, post-dated native contact with European settlers. Kind of implicit in a lot of discussion about the Wendigo is that this was something that was around for a long time in what is now Canada, and, you know... Sometimes winters grew long, sometimes people got hungry, sometimes folks ate people, and of course you would have stories, taboos, and fear-fueled folklore about that. This is an excerpt from Margaret Atwood's Wilderness Tips, Apocalyptic Cannibal Fiction, by Marlena Goldman. Uh, she is an English professor at the University of Toronto. Goldman writes, By far the greatest misunderstanding concerning the Wendigo— which directly relates to Atwood's depictions of cannibalism, involves the belief that the image of the bloodthirsty cannibal monster sprang fully formed from within native culture. As Raymond Fogelson notes, however, early references to the Wendigo relate to the evil god who posed a threat to humans and had to be propitiated. In these accounts, characteristics which were later associated with the Wendigo being are absent, including his gigantic stature, his anthropophagus or cannibal propensities, and his symbolic connection with the north, winter, and starvation. 
the shift from evil deity to flesh-eating monster has left a number of anthropologists to speculate that the attributes of cannibalism or the concept of the Wendigo is a category or race of non-human entities developed after European contact. Anthropologist Lou Moreno confirms that the native category carried no semantic connotations of cannibalism, but took on this ancillary meaning for 150 years or more during crisis conditions of a particular kind. He concludes that the Europeans played a significant role in creating a cannibal monster that they looked on with such revulsion and fascination. In keeping with Morano's findings, Charles Bishop argues that the instance of Wendigo accusations, like extensive witch trials in America, are tied to stress within the community. In the case of natives in North America, this stress was largely brought about by dwindling resources and increased dependence on trading posts. Unquote. That right there is the most fascinating take I have read on the Wendigo. That it's not simply one more instance of human societies demonizing cannibalism, but arises out of very specific, apocalyptic, changing circumstances. Whole ways of life, ways of getting food, ways of hunting, ways of harvesting are gone. Famine and deprivation become all the more real. Greed, gluttony, and selfishness, of which cannibalism is kind of the ultimate expression of, become all the more dangerous. And that deprivation and fear, and that deprivation, that fear, that taboo, distills itself into a monster. All of our best monsters, vampires, werewolves, creatures from the Black Lagoon, we don't like them and we don't fear them and we don't tell stories about them simply because they look cool. They are us, or rather, they are our fears and anxieties and our hardship. They are what we run away from. They are what we don't want to become. They are what we also can intensely identify with. And in the Wendigo, you see so much going on. You do see some of humanity's most fundamental taboos, the taboo against eating people, embodied within it, and also the potential horror of having your entire way of life wiped away and only hunger remaining. Thank you all for listening. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a monthly supporter. Thank you to all of you who do that. I couldn't do this without you. Another way to support the podcast is to go on Apple Podcast and give us a rating or review. That's really useful. It helps other folks discover the show. Uh, we're on social media. I'm on Twitter, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. Also, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.